Welcome to the Art Stays Here Coalition's new podcast series, Culture Crisis Conversations. In the series, we'll hear from folks affected by the ongoing arts, music, and cultural displacement that's happening across the country. These include artists, musicians, and other creatives, as well as developers, policymakers, funders, operators, arts and cultural leaders, and more. They will share their stories and their own voices to best communicate the impact that cultural displacement has had on individuals and communities and how we can choose to make it stop. Today, we are in conversation with J.J. Gonson and my fellow colleague, Ethan Dussault. Why don't we first um, introduce ourselves and kind of give a little background to the hats you all wear? Yeah, uh, I'm Ethan Dussault, co-owner, co-operator of New Alliance Audio in Somerville, Mass., and a volunteer with Arts Days Here Coalition. I'm J.J. Gonson. Uh, my hats include music venue impresario and a little bit of music production, event production, catering, and photography. Excellent. My name is Amy Bennett. I am a longtime arts administrator, used to work in the music business, band manager, publicist, uh, currently um, founding member, volunteer of Arts Days Here. So what we're here to talk about today, um, where all these things collide, is basically over time, kind of um, what's happened to music and art and the landscape of it in our region and what's happening now, what happened because of COVID, development, property values. And um, we could maybe start with once, if you want to tell the story about, sure. but not only the down, but the up sure. of once. Yeah. So I rented the space at 156 Highland Ave in 2014. I was going there with my catering company, which at the time was doing really well, and uh, Cuisine on Locale is my catering company. And one of the things that we were doing really well at was meal delivery, like prepared food for families. We had a big program, like 70 families a week, and we needed to move out of the kitchen, the shared use kitchen we were in, and there was a kitchen in that space and it was already licensed for catering, which is zoning and licensing is like a whole podcast of its own. And I rented the space a little impulsively, thinking that I could do things like weddings. And I could have, but I needed more time than I had to kind of build that base. So I was using it for catering and I was using it for food production, but the bar was sitting empty a lot. And I noticed when people rented the space to do music, the room sounded good, which is one thing. The first time we ever had a show there, Walter Sickert and the Army of Broken Toys. We brought in a PA, the music went on and everyone went, oh, this room has potential. This isn't just a big awful box. Like So you're talking about the ballroom I'm at once. I'm talking about the ballroom at once. And yeah. for and for folks who are listening uh once uh was um a live music venue in Somerville. What would you call that neighborhood? Mid Somerville? Central Central Hill. Okay. Great. Um Highland Ave. Yep. Yeah. Corner of Highland and Central. Um right by Highland Kitchen. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, Continue. Sure, yeah. So we, I, I should re rewind a little bit. We got in there, we had an 800 square foot catering kitchen, but we also had about 5,000 square feet of ballroom 
which was a capacity of almost 400. And then we had a wonderful little lounge that wasn't that much smaller, but the ceilings were really low. So I capped it at 100 because it would get really hot up there and it just started to get uncomfortable and the view, the sight lines weren't great. So we did small events upstairs and then larger shows downstairs. And there were a lot of nights when there was only seven people watching the show downstairs. You know, it was it's hard to be a venue. It's like it's like having a gambling addiction a little bit. So say a little bit more about that. When you book a band, you're taking a chance, a big chance on whether anybody is actually going to come to see that band. And you can make some predictions based on past performance and the time of year and the day of the week. But at the end of the day, like it's really hard to know how a show is going to do, especially an independent show. So the the most successful shows that we would do at once, and this is as things progressed and I started to do more and more music there, and my background is in music, so that was very natural. But as we started to do more and more music, one of the things that happened was that we forged a really positive relationship with Live Nation. Mm. At the time, it was Crossroads. Mm-hmm. And the first year, there was this guy, Lance Tobin, at... Um, crossroads at the time who saw the potential for both companies he saw a place that was unbooked a lot a big a bigger space that was unbooked a lot and he knew that he needed a space to develop up-and-coming bands so that he could then grab them for his bigger rooms when they came back through it was a total win-win the first year we did something like 130 events with crossroads then they did this weird thing where they pulled back the knock-on effect of the relationship with Crossroads, because they had the marketing power, was actually a big part of why the venue became an established venue. And I'm really grateful to them for that. They would pay a room fee, they'd bring in their staff, and they would promote. And it was a great situation. And I think Lance made it happen largely because he really did believe that independent venues are important. They didn't try to buy the venue. They paid us a fair price for the room. The, you know, they made it possible for us to keep going in a lot of ways. There was another person, Chris Porter, Porter Productions, who, when I first started doing music, I've known him since the 90s, and when I first started doing music, he was in town, and I invited him over, and we're standing there watching a show, and I was like, hey, ever wanted a little boutique room to book? <laughs> and he was like, actually, yeah. So he also brought in a lot of really good stuff and did a lot of great things for us, because... I have a lot of vision, but I don't necessarily have all the skills to market things. So it kind of we kind of fell backwards into being a venue a little bit. We had the entertainment license because it was a entertainment facility, and I had gone through a lot of hoops to get things like a pool table, which took seven months to license. I was like it's not even a regulation size table. What do you think is going to happen here? It was a total trouble, trouble in River City I guess City we'll have moment. to talk about government process and a whole other podcast, like licensing. you're saying. Yes, yes, right. Okay. Yes, we'll do a whole zoning and licensing thing. Okay, great. And how that prevents people from being able to follow their bliss. The, the 250 to 400 capacity venue is one of the most important sizes in all of you know major cities having venues. It's one of the most important sizes. Why? Because... For a number of reasons, one, uh, as JJ has just explained, bookers need them need them need those size venues to develop up and coming acts. But also, um, they they help local bands strive towards 
larger followings. They become better. It drives them to want to be better bands, better performers. And then they actually can achieve that. It's how they they grow. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so not only, not only is the, the mainstream industry benefiting from those size venues, but the local upcoming underground artists uh, need them as well. It's, 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 it's a, it's like a venue that, it's at the cross crossroads, no pun intended on the <laughs> name of that booking company, but um, that size venue is the crossroads of, you know, um, underground and mainstream. Yeah. Uh, Let's uh, take that a little further. In our region, what are some of those venues, um, past, present, et cetera? Uh, they were once and once Great had Scott. two rooms. So once had a hundred and four hundred, and Great Scott was two seventy or something. Two seventy, like, something, something in between. Really and important. Yeah. Um, Thunder Road was three hundred, maybe. Yeah, also gone. Also gone. Um, I mean, we could sit here and go through gone, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, Let's Milky see. Way. Mm-hmm. Uh, TT's, TT's is TT's closed. TT's was a perfect size venue for that TT's was purpose. Per, as TT's well. was mm-hmm. the absolutely the spot yep. on one of the best venues exactly. because it had not only well, first of all, the location mm-hmm. is not to be beat, and it's why, despite all of the fraught, contentious conversations about the Middle East, it survives because it's on the it's best place on location, Mass Ave yeah. in the middle of Central Square and like people are walking by all the time and a great location great, great size location. great great staff three also, venues historic I mean mm-hmm. so historic one more time about TT's um, yeah. Smashing Pumpkins first big show in the in Boston area was TT's Jane's Addiction and mm-hmm. it's funny you say that because Smashing Pumpkins and Jane's Addiction just played here and Billy Corgan told the story of their first show in Boston being at TT and the Bears and then James Ehas stepped up to the mic and said, actually, Billy, it's TT the Bears. Yeah. And it was amazing, the reaction the crowd got. So, you know, they're playing this gigantic venue, the Garden. They're telling the story about this legendary local club, sadly no longer exists, that was historic in, in so many ways. But not only that, their memory of it was such that James Eha remembered the actual name, corrected Billy, and that the entire place New. remembered mm-hmm. the club. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. That it's, it's history, and um, for folks who don't know, I guess I feel like I keep saying things like that. Uh, TT the Bears um, was the name of the club. Higher place. TT uh, the Bears. Right. Sorry, not TT and the Bear or any of these things. And it's crazy name. Hi, Randy. Hi, Bonnie. Etc. Shout out. And a favorite place, and and an amazing place to start. Definitely where I started. I I taking photos. Shot, yeah, mm-hmm. when I was shooting, um, I was in college. I I figured out in college that I could get into shows for free if I took pictures of bands. And I had met this guy, Mike Gitter, who had a fanzine. <laughs> the Git, the Git, amazing human being, still really important in metal um, and punk. He had started Triple X Fanzine, and we ran into each other in line at a Huskadoo concert at the paradise and we were 18 and he was like i started a fanzine and i'm like i take pictures and it was a match made in heaven and we took pictures and wrote stories together for so many i i think we did a rolling stone story together we did a lot in um thrasher which mm. was really fun oh, wow. mm-hmm. and now people are like oh thrasher magazine I'm like yeah that was that punk rock skate rag that i used to take pictures for so um but tt's i shot at tt's so many shows it's such a massive archive mm-hmm. and it was such an mm-hmm. important place the rat and tt's mm-hmm. those were the great all ages really great all ages rooms 
that did incredible variety, both of them really available. All, all genres. Mm-hmm. And now, we, I, I, I have to say, like, the channel, oh. I, 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 I sadly didn't really get to experience the channel. Because you're a babe. I'm a 43-year-old baby. Because <laughs> you're a babe. Um, but that, you know, that's another legendary Boston venue. That, that was could in the heart never of be replicated never. because we don't have any warehouses left. Because why? All the developers have torn them down. Or I found out recently the other reason we don't have them is because freaking Amazon has bought them all. Yeah. You know, and here actually um, something that Ethan and I have been talking about when we're talking about um, generationally and age and kind of what's been lost and that uh, we've been having conversations about Fort Point overall, like as an artist community. And what some of the people I've talked to in Fort Point who are a little bit older than us, everyone knows about that. That's old news. And it's like, guess what? There's a whole generation that don't even know what was there or what was lost. And that's going to be a whole other conversation. So um, it's, I think it's important. What was lost. It's important, I think. But we should talk about what there is now. And I'm sorry that we, we just got awfully sentimental because the reality is that it's not just that these places have closed it's that there's not really anything that's come in to replace them right even unless it's out in, of town unless it's out of town even in all these years we're talking about not just covid we're mm-hmm. talking about decades of slow decline um so what do we have now we have the crystal ballroom which yep. is in somerville yep which is a, a you know a, what 400 cap really important size we have brighton music hall which is crossroads paradise is crossroads uh house of blues is crossroads there's the sinclair the middle east sinclair is bowery mm-hmm. aeg um there's well atwoods was and now is atwoods not. is going to rise again oh, as Gloucester. another place oh, i'm talking about oh. satellite which is the the reincarnation of atwoods sold to Remnant Brewery and Remnant Brewery's opening satellite. Oh, and they I did do not know that. plan to do okay. music okay, um, on that beautiful stage. All those clubs, though, that we just mentioned yeah. are either bigger or smaller than that sweet spot. Right, right. So what do we have? 250. Rockwell is 180. Yeah. Which is a nice size. It's a weird 180, though, because it's, oh, a, it's, it's, such a, a, it's a theater. And it's a complicated room. You know, we just had yeah. this conversation. There is no reason. Uh, some I do a lot of shows at Rockwell. I have a very hard time getting people into that room. It's not a great Bands people room. or human or audience people? Audience people. Okay. Oh, bands are gagging to play anywhere, anywhere. they can. And unfortunately, and this is a... <laughs> we keep tangenting, but... but Bands that are good at getting out there and promoting themselves and networking get a lot of shows, but there are hundreds of bands that nobody is hearing. I get solicitations constantly, constantly, and I can't possibly help them. I just say, give me your name. I'll do my best to help you. But there's so many bands, even beyond that, like who just don't even know where to begin. How do you even approach a venue or a promoter? One of the problems I think we're having when it comes to getting people out to shows is that the same handful of bands are grabbing all of the shows. And the result of that is people don't go because they're seeing these bands performing. I I just saw a well-loved band who isn't playing a show with me, but a well-loved, maybe, like a band that plays out a lot. They're playing four shows this week. In the area? In the area. I was like, okay, so they're playing this brewery in Malden, and then they're playing, or whatever, and then they're playing 
this thing at Aeronaut and then they're playing but they're still playing four times how many times am I going to go see this well, band let's, let's, let's talk about that why, think, yeah. why is that good or not good well why is it good or not good? Well, overexposure. I mean, it's what Jade is saying. People are going to stop coming. You might be a, you might be one of the best bands in Boston, but if you play four times a week it's or right, four times space a month, it out. four times a month, like nobody's going to yeah. come to that third or fourth show. I would say, but, or we, even the first one, because there is definitely this thing where you start seeing a name come up that often, and you're like, "Oh, I'll just, I'll just go, go see to the them next one. to the next one. I'll just right. see it when it's convenient." And then convenient, you end up going to none of them, <laughs> and then you go to none of them, or right. you've seen them this year, like. What you is know, it, so what is your advice uh, to frequency? Oh, I'd like to see bands playing once every three months. I think that would be a reasonable amount of time for them to get in the decent, region, not even in one cl- like, w- once every three months in the region in the Boston area. Yeah. OK. But and I think they would get paid more because more people would come out. It would be the and, growth. Yeah. Time but, to grow. But what we're talking about is where where do they grow to? And actually, I said this, but now I want the answer. 250. We talked about the Middle East. 250. Oh, oh, O'Brien's. That's an 80. Yeah. 80? Much yeah, smaller. That's a small venue. Smaller than, smaller than TT's. Yeah. yeah. Great room, though. If you want to go to, if you want to go to, like Lily and not long for this life. If you want to go to a 250 this in this day and age, you have to go outside the three cities. So you're you're not going to Somerville, you're not going to Cambridge, you're not going to Boston. You're going to Everett, Malden, whatever. And Medford. the thing is, is a lot of people, every, yeah, people are just not, a lot of people are not interested in going to those places. That's very true. Um, you know, you don't live in the city so that you can go out to the suburbs. No offense to those but cities. But if you I live like, in you know. the suburbs, do you go to those shows? Do people who live in Malden go to shows in Malden? I don't. People I don't think it's that. I think Medford? it's. I think it's our ecosystem, our region, going wherever there's live music. Where are the music scenes? They are in Boston, Somerville, Cambridge is mm-hmm. one. They are in Providence. They are in Northampton. They are in Lowell. They are in Worcester. And Salem a little bit. And they are in Salem. Yes, Salem's growing. Yeah. Um, they are not in Norwood. Norwood. Bedford. Attleboro. Right. Right. You know. They're. You know. Right. So then we can get into the whole thing about where can you afford to live. And then where can you afford to do your music? But right. we would, that's but another podcast. Is, well, but the <laughs> bands will go. Yes. The bands will travel from the suburbs. I have a friend in a band. She lives in Marshfield. She is more than happy to drive to Boston to play that's the, a show. Because that's the scene. Yes. So those, the bands will drive. It's the fans who won't, <laughs> who won't. And if you're not on public transportation, I mean, at once... I'm sorry, I'm really going in big circles here, but we t- I started to touch on places that are destinations versus places that get walk by. So the Middle East gets all this walk by traffic. Mm-hmm. People are going to go to the bars, they're going to go to have food there, whether or not they're going to a show, they're like People are taking the tea to I'm the neighborhood. Get a bar. And they're out. going yep. to the neighborhood mm-hmm. anyway. They've just had dinner at Viale, they walk by, they're like, "Oh my god, there's a band playing here tonight. It's only $10. Let's check it out." This is true of a couple of places, not a lot of places, but it's definitely not true of the Rockwell. So the Rockwell doesn't have a bar. It doesn't have food. It's dark unless there's a show, which means that you only get those destination people. And this was also true, unfortunately, of Once. Once was very much a destination venue, which meant that if a show wasn't doing well, it wasn't going to do well because we would get a little bit of walk by from Highland Kitchen, but mostly those were neighbors. On the other hand, 
Highland Kitchen when we had a show. Of course, you can't get a seat up because <laughs> they they were the bar, they were the food. Like right. we didn't have that. So, but I think that um, part of the survival has to do with these things that people can do that are more than just being a venue because they're really at that 250 mark there's no money in being only a venue because like the Rockwell there's no way that they're making money on the Rockwell the Rockwell survives because it's owned by the same person as the Independent and Vera's and Saloon and the what's the other one upstairs so all those successful restaurants are keeping this passion project going but they can't sell enough tickets the bar never does much there their shows are only three hours long people come in they have a drink maybe or they go to the shop next door and get a joint and smoke it outside before they come in so they don't drink at all yeah so the model, also, yeah. yeah, the model that I pitch to people when I talk about like when I talk to a developer who might have an interest in, in hosting a venue in one of their properties or when I talk to potential club owners like reopening or moving into town or whatever, you know, the model I always pitch is front room is always open. It's where your regulars come. If, they, if they're not interested in the show, they still have a place to hang. Silhouette lounge. Yeah. The cocktails are always great. Maybe there's some small plates. And it's always a good hang, no matter what's going on in the back room. And then that back room is 250 to 300 people. And that's, you know, hopefully book seven nights a week. But if not, you still have the income from the front room where everybody's, you know, hanging out. you know what else you can do in those rooms? You can do events. Yeah, totally. And that's something that I think, um, I mean, I certainly said that to the Crystal Ballroom when they first opened. I was like, sure, you want to be a rock room. But first and foremost, grab every wedding you can because... Those are just magnificent money makers, mm-hmm. as opposed to a show where you it might get the, room the fee. It subsidizes, and at once also the catering and the events were the only way that we could survive over there. Even you know, I I remember sometimes watching bars run and be like, oh my god, it's going to be a night. We're going to do a five thousand dollar bar tonight. This is going to be great. It was like twice a year, you know. Like that's why I said at the beginning, it's kind of like being a gambling addict, right? You're like. Seriously, it's like watching a horse race. Well, and you have to gamble because you have to make the nut, if not more. Right. So, like, you can't just say, oh, I'm not, uh, it's too risky. I'm not going to do it. You have to do it. Sometimes it's better to be dark. Mm -hmm. You know, when you start to talk about, like, in a place the size of once, we had to have a minimum of six people working all the time because there was doors to guard and stairs to watch and two bars that needed to be monitored and bartenders. You know, all those people, you can't, you have to be able to say like, well, we've sold five tickets for the ballroom tonight. So is it worth opening? Even if you have a room fee coming in, if you know that you're going to sell like $20 in beer. No, then you're at a loss. And you can only do that so often. But that's the venue problem, right? That's the venue. That's a venue problem no matter where you are. But um, let's talk a little bit more about once and like certain highlights during the time. And, you know, talk about the Rumble. You could talk about Girls Rock Camp. Talk about different like how once became like tapestry within the community. Sure. Yeah. I loved doing those special programs. BRPM is the new name for um, Girls Rock Boston. That was a really, really important thing. I actually hosted the the adult session of that, which I also would participate in. And that which was, was called Ladies Rock Camp. It was called Ladies Rock Camp. And it was a really, I, 
I, it's an amazing experience. Shout out to anybody who's thinking they might want to have this experience. I can't encourage you enough. It's in, it's like a sauna for the soul. It's amazing. Um, it's a big group hug for three days. <laughs> so we hosted the adult session, um, the the showcase, and it was always just incredibly powerful, if not profitable. It was like just an incredibly powerful experience. And those experiences mean that people are watching what you're doing and have a good feeling about the room. There was a lot of love for that room. A lot of people felt very connected to that room personally. It was like their place that they liked to see music. And I think it was a beautiful, wonderful, funky as hell, punk rock, cool ass space. But, you know, there's been rooms in the history of rooms that have sounded better than that room and had better bar service than that room. I think it had more to do with like that you walked in and people smiled and made you feel welcome there and greeted you. And Well, there were people the like you that also wanted to see music and be part of right. that. And, and I would take a chance on stuff that maybe was a little bit less possible. Can you give a little synopsis of what either Girls Rock Camp or Ladies Rock Camp, for, like, well, why don't you say Ladies Rock Camp, what that was and what you got out of it? Yeah, well, so it's, I think it's still happening. It's the fundraising arm for the the youth sessions of this really amazing camp, which exists for um, to use creative, collaborative creativity to empower youth who might otherwise be kind of lost in the shuffle. And that historically has been girls and youth who are questioning their gender, um, exploring their gender. And so you partic- you were a participant in the one for uh, adults. I was. I actually volunteered for the youth as well, and my daughter participated in youth for years. Um, I was a, a camper in the adult section. I only think I volunteered as a band manager maybe once or twice in the adult section, but I was a camper. And then um, the the model is that you you come in having been assigned one of five instruments guitar bass keys drums or vocals and then you form very quickly a band with people that you don't necessarily know you over the course of the session which for the adults is three days you write a song you create a persona for your band you create a logo you make a t-shirt you get band photos have band photoed by the amazing amazing uh kelly davidson incredible photographer and then you perform to a very large audience at a decent sized venue. And like once. Like once. Or Brighton Music Hall is, I think, where the mm-hmm. kids perform. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you're supported through this experience by the love and care of this community. And the people who see you play are friends and family and are very supportive and cheer and scream. And it makes you feel really good about yourself. What instrument did you I did it 10 times, so I think over the course of the time, I did every everything, but my favorite is drums followed by bass. And mm. I think I like drums because you get to be in the very back, and <laughs> bass, you kind of can also... Almost all the way in the back. All the way in the back, and um, but really important, and I love how bass combines rhythm and music. I love that about bass. Yeah, it ties the, it ties the melodic elements to the rhythmic instruments. So cool. Yeah. So cool. So um, those experiences, I think those are really important. Weddings are really important because then people also have this connection to this space. 
um, and we'll tell their friends like this. We always did kind of punk rock weddings, like really over the top drag weddings and things like that, mm. because we had this stage and this full. The sound system, by the way, did come from TTs. Oh, wow. um, and is in storage, in case anybody wants it. Um, it it was a really amazing moment. It was like Bonnie calling me and being like, "Come get it right now, and you can have it." <laughs> we paid for it, but totally reasonable and we had to go do all the work ripping it all out and it was gross but um but also we cried the whole time and um lots of crying so there was oh so much crying so there was a big we have this big sound system so we would do weddings that wanted to have that element you had to be having a band or some kind of entertainment that would be why they would hire us and i think it's probably why weddings go to crystal ballroom as well because they've got that big setup how about the rumble the Rumble is um, is an amazing feat of strength. It's an amazing accomplishment. We're talking about um, the almost annual Rock and Roll Rumble. Which, which has been going for decades. Decades. It started out as WBCN's Rock and Roll Rumble. It's been with our friend Angel, who now has Boston Emissions. And um, how many times was the Rumble hosted at once? I think we only did it three times because one year she canceled. Okay. And then I th- I'm not sure if we were going into our fourth when COVID started we had April was entirely booked out for the rum- for everything. We had amazing stuff coming. Oh my god. Our schedule going into that spring and we had finally anybody who ever wants to talk about financials um, we had finally turned the corner where we weren't losing money. We weren't getting rich, but we were starting to pay off our bills. And that was so major after six years that we had finally started to get to that point. Um, for the first time ever, I had somebody who wanted to invest. We shook hands a week before COVID closed our doors. So there was all this stuff that we were going to do. We were going to improve the sound. We were going to improve the lights. We were going to improve access. Like There was so much that was going to happen. So COVID. So for once, COVID wasn't just COVID, like it is for lots of things. It was you were, you were on the brink of a turning point in every single way. Yep. And then COVID happened. And then COVID happened. I saw it coming. The last big thing we did was the the adult rock camp session, and we had stopped hugging each other. We had started washing our hands a lot and turning our heads away, and like if somebody coughed, they had to go home. And um, at that last session, there was no hugging, which is a really big thing at those rock camps. There's a lot of hugging, but there was none. And um, I had I put all these these um, rules into place that week that were like I had made up this really elaborate schedule of how the door people could get up and wash their hands every 20 minutes, and the doors were supposed to be sanitized regularly. We had spray bottles by all the door handles. And there was all of this, like, I was like, okay, we have to, you know, fight this bug that's coming in. So we knew, we saw it in the offing. And then I think, I think bands started to cancel before everything closed. We started to see shows cancel. And that was terrifying. And ultimately, we canceled everything. Um, there was somebody, our the booking person, our in-house booking person, Bridget Duggan, amazing human being, um, was, I mean, she was just, it was killing her. It was breaking her heart. And we should talk about trauma. But um, as she started to have to 
refund show after show after show. I am probably the only venue owner in the history of venue owners that was holding that money. I had opened a account that was holding the ticket money and I didn't use it as cash flow. So when the shows closed, I actually had the money to reimburse people. So I didn't get into legal problems there. I actually did have the money to reimburse those tickets. But um, but obviously, revenue stopped immediately. Um, I did some fundraising to help to support some band, uh, some artists and um, not and the staff, um, and also um, we pivoted into an online model and did hundreds of online shows at for the first year. Um, how did that go? Were bands receptive? Like how the bands were so happy. But this is again the the people that wanted to be online were the people who were online. Many, many, many people trauma, trauma. Many, many, many people shut down and wanted nothing to do with the internet. Um, maybe they were still writing songs, but they were not interested in doing online. Why do you stuff. think trauma, trauma, trauma? Um, mm-hmm. Artists. Um, you know, a lot of people, I think the expectations were, oh, you know, you're going to be home with your guitar or your keyboard or your bass or your notepad, and you're going to have all this time not at work, and you're going to want to create, and you're going to want to filter your emotions and deal with this experience and create art. Some people did that, but a lot of people didn't pick up their instruments once. You know? Because of the effect of COVID and Because fear of the trauma. And, yeah, okay. it's, it was a traumatic experience. Yeah, um, it's so, okay to name it as yeah, what it was. So I think I think that was that's, trauma. It was trauma. It was <laughs> for ser- everyone. For everyone. For everyone in the industry. For the for the bigger bands who had their tours canceled and had no insurance. I I mean that was trauma. It was trauma, and they they lost their livelihoods. And for the venues. I used to lie awake at night being afraid that my doors would suddenly be shut. Like, this is the greatest fear when you're a venue owner is some horrible thing happening and all of a sudden your entire livelihood goes down the tubes. I lost, I, I don't even want to tell you what what I lost when the venue closed and feel, everything I'd ever free. saved. I, I had, well, I mean, it's a long crazy battle with Somerville. They had devalued my liquor license a few years earlier, so I didn't have any equity left because I had bought a liquor license and then Somerville opened up 60, 60 free licenses. Cambridge did the same. Anybody who owned a liquor license no longer had any value in their liquor license. So the only equity I had in my life that, you know, from years and years of saving was devalued to nothing. And um, so I felt like I had to hang on to the venue because it was the only way I was going to ever be able to pay back everything was to just keep cranking out of this space. So when the door slammed shut, I didn't have anything. I had no security. I had nothing underneath me. And neither did anybody else. I mean, the, all of those people that worked there, you know, gig workers didn't have anything. So that's like your biggest fear, right? Is all of a sudden having your your life just... Well, your life's dream, your, your livelihood. Life work, your livelihood, yeah. Yeah, your security. And it wasn't yeah. just the venue. It was also my catering company because all of a sudden like catering stopped nobody was gathering for two and a half years there was no catering and i'm not a restaurant person so 
I couldn't get my head around pivoting into a take takeout model because that's not what I was set up to do. And there was no staff and like I tried, but I couldn't get my head around that at all. That wasn't what we'd been doing. So it was losing everything. It was losing my catering company. And then I had to let go of the space because there was no revenue and I was just sinking into like crushing debt. So when I left the space, I gave the landlord all of the assets, big, beautiful walk-in, very expensive ice machine, the kitchen that I had built out when I got there, the liquor license, obviously, the lease, like he got all of that because there was no, I I had gotten into crazy debt Mm -hmm. because we were hand to mouth Mm -hmm. all the time. But, I was. I've been. How did you have the energy to do the stuff online and try to like exist in a pandemic and try to figure out your future and make good on the past? Like how? Or I. I mean, that's kind of a therapeutic question, but no. I think. I mean, trauma, right? How do you survive trauma? You put on blinders. You dissociate. Um. I ha- I it took me two years to accept that my venue was closed. I I'm still have it like the grief that I feel when I drive by that space now. I avoid it. I try not to drive up Highland Ave, and that is hard. <laughs> when you're going anywhere in Cambridge and Somerville, avoiding Highland Ave is like really really difficult. And I try. Um, it's like it's like touching a wound every time I drive by it. So. Um, what would it take to rebuild or reopen at once? Um, well, and would you, and would you ever do it? I don't have I don't have the financial ability to do it. Um, it would take fundraising. Mm-hmm. You know that's not impossible. There might be people that want to make that happen and invest in it, but it has to be a model that is can pay back investment and that means not just a music room um it means maybe partnering with a restaurant or a bar or something like that but the biggest thing is where is that space Mm -hmm. where is there aside from once which still hasn't somebody please out there talk to him tell him he can be the salvation of medium-sized music and then bring me in to manage it (laughs) (laughs) um you're saying you're saying there's not a tenant there now it's just sitting there it's just sitting there it was, great, great Scott is just sitting there. Yeah, these rooms uh, are just sitting there. Yeah, the Abbey, the Abbey is. Oh, we didn't say the Abbey. I mean, it's still there, but it's used as something else. It's not right, isn't it? Isn't it just a lounge now? It's not just a bar lounge. It's not. There's no music yeah. and stuff. I don't know. Uh, it's um. So what would it take? It would take a space, and um, I believe there are spaces. I mean, I know when I drew, drive through Cambridge. I see spaces, but it's, so to have a music space, you have to be not sharing walls with people who want quiet. And um, it was a problem at once. We had a very, very, very loud church upstairs and they shook our ceilings from seven to nine, which meant that I couldn't do, that was one of the things that defeated us with weddings. They were there all day on Sunday and every single day of the week from seven to nine, and it made weddings very difficult. And we lost the moth 
we had the moth radio hour but they wouldn't be they wouldn't not do it one day a month so we the moth couldn't stay with us because they record and they were picking up this pounding pounding music coming from upstairs mm-hmm. so is that church still a tenant oh yeah okay i'm pretty sure both of the churches the liquor store is still there i don't know what's happening there was supposed to be a a dispensary that was supposed to go down the entire side and he closed all of those businesses but um what i've been hearing recently is that dispensaries in somerville are not opening because there's such a proliferation that there's actually they're not seeing sales so i could imagine that one like that's not a great location so if all of the circumstances fell into into place like you're saying if there were investors if there was a place if blah 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 are you untraumatized enough to go back in if all those things yeah 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 i would i would love to to launch another space mostly i mean i just think it's so important and i love i love the the energy, the community energy in a space that size. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't really know what to do with myself. I have a very limited set of skills, right? Like you, But you wear so many hats. I wear a lot of hats, but none of them are really very marketable <laughs> as a skill set. So, I mean, I can, I, can, I can see what's supposed to happen in a space, and I can program the people into place you know, I know you need a door person, you need security people, you need good bartenders. Like, I understand that. And it makes sense to me. If somebody wants to hire me to do it, I'd be happy to do that. <laughs> but um, I think that it, I I would love to find, I'd love to find a room between like in that 250 range. I think that really is the like, it's a great size. It's a great size. It's and, a it great helps, size. and it helps bands grow. Which helps mm-hmm. build generations. I mean, it's part of the natural cycle of, yeah. of all of it. So there must be, like, there must be spaces somewhere, right? I think I think what it comes down to is is uh, developers mm-hmm. um, working with and not against the community to provide arts and cultural space that the community wants. Yes. Not something that helps them fulfill some kind of zoning obligation that that is going to get used like barely you know we have this thing i think this is what you're referring to ace Mm -hmm. which is arts and cultural enterprises Mm -hmm. which is such i'm just naming it i know you're both like yup (laughs) it is so loosely defined what is a cultural enterprise it's like so it's arts and creative creative. sorry creative so first of all we're talking about the city of somerville yeah and we're talking about their zoning and cambridge right no this is a somerville rule somerville Arts and Creative Enterprise is um, a policy that the city has in place for new development um, of of a cer- of certain categories in so if, certain zoned. Places. So if you're so if you're building a certain type of building, you may be required to provide five to ten percent of that new development um, as arts and creative use, and that definition that you're talking about is currently broad and now that it's been in place for a few years they are redefining it so it will become like, more what it's intended to I do am, which is to provide 
arts, more of an arts arts focus and not so much a a WeWork or a brewery or something like that. Or an architectural firm. Or an architect, right. Which I have a lot of respect for architects. They are creative. They're not hurting for space. But they're not hurting for space. We need... So here's my dream. I'll tell you my dream. I was going to ask you what your dream was. What's my dream? My dream, I've seen it. I've seen it. Not in Boston, but I've seen it. It's a warehouse where you build an interior space that is completely... No windows. It's completely... An interior, a box, a box that is soundproofed and structurally designed to be a music and performance space. And then all around the outside of it, you have visual artist spaces. So if there are windows in this warehouse, you're taking advantage of that light for visual artists who can have independent studios all around so that when you come there, they can have walking sales so you can have like your and maybe some food businesses mixed in there and so you have this destination that people can come maybe during the day it's like a shopping area and there's boutiques and the, but people who are making in those a spaces, cultural center a cult- of someone it's a cultural arts yeah. center you, you have but you have not, seen it and a lot of people have this dream and you yeah. think you think that with so many people having this dream mm-hmm. that cities would get wise. Yeah. I've seen it in other places. I've mm-hmm. seen it in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. I've seen it in other places where there are warehouse areas. You know, I'm sorry, I'm segging wildly here, but I was just in Brooklyn a couple weeks ago and Bushwick. I don't know if you've been to Bushwick recently. Not in 20 years. Bushwick, which is a wasteland of warehouses is full of venues now it's all turned into venues and all have you been all different kinds of venues and they're big venues and there's little venues and you walk through bushwick and you hear music coming from all these venues there's no neighbors nobody there's parking like nobody cares what's happening in bushwick because it's but just now's warehouses. their time but, but 20 years from that. now the same thing is going to happen yeah, they need to work on getting ownership of those warehouses yes starting right. now because they'll right. make it great and right. then people, the prices will go up, right. and then they'll it's, sell. This the same is thing is going to happen. Right? Yes, this yes. is for all point. of it, everything. So we don't have warehouses. Mm-hmm. There's no warehouses. Well, we do in Somerville somewhat, and we Where? do in Charlestown do on the river. Charlestown, maybe yep, Terminal Street. Uh-huh. Um, and there are some. Um, well, we we call it, I guess, light industrial, which right. is similar to warehouse. Um, right where you are in Somerville, mm-hmm. yeah, Cambridge well, well, cr- over the, on the Belmont line, right? That yeah. light industrial mm-hmm. area where Iggy's is, but I hear it's all coming down. Or Central Square where Sydney Street. I mean, that's all like labs and science and stuff now, but that used to be. That used to be. Mm-hmm. It used to be Kendall Square. Yep, exactly. It used to be. It all used to be. I mean, that's where EMF was. You know, it's that's a great example of. So the answer is ownership. The answer mm-hmm. is ownership, right? Like meaning right. we the, as creatives, we need right. to come together. Mm-hmm. We need to learn all these things. We right. need to get some money and some people and some resources and we need to start owning things. So one of the things that we talked about at a Somerville meeting that I said was we need liaisons. Um, we need people who can talk both to the developers and to the creative people because they don't speak the same language. And I work with a developer um, some, and over and over again, I've had a problem where things have started to flare up because we're just simply using a different word for something. Like there was a moment a couple of years ago where they asked me over and over again for a plan. Mm-hmm. 
And I was like, how many times can I write this plan for you? I've written it. Like, we're going to have a festival on a parking lot and we're going to have this many vendors and we're going to do this and this. And they're like, no, we need a plan. We need a plan. And I was like, finally, after months, I figured out what they meant was a map. Yes. An architect- they, a drawing. They meant an architectural yeah. drawing. Yes. But the word plan correct. to me correct. doesn't correct. mean that. And it was this simple, like, one word hang up where if there had been somebody that I could have said, hey, can you help me to translate this but i was on i've always been on my own with that well that's what exactly what what we're doing is we're being in between that and i would make a third party which is government you know and how how government speak right development speak nonprofit artists other speak well some of supposed to have that person right we have a, someone who's now called the cultural space manager his name is My, michael rosenberg he's great we interviewed him last night with greg jenkins um and it just takes a lot of time to implement some of these things. And some of it is, you know, historic government stuff and city stuff and neighborhood stuff. And um, community process is difficult. Working in groups is difficult. Working across all of these um, sectors is difficult. I'll tell you, so even, this is kind of a tangent, but even, let's say, so I'm a lifelong um, arts publicist. I've worked with the media for 30 years. Um, coverage of this very topic arts, cultural, creative space, development, etc. It is not, even the media doesn't really know how to deal with it. Is it real estate? Is it business? Is it government? Is it arts? And sometimes we get different coverage in different places, but it's actually a, an epitome of this crossroads of where all these things come together. And, you know, typically, art, artists and musicians, freelance gig workers, etc., we're not the people who are investment bankers and have a ton of money or have access to that or talk the talk. We're also not the people who are embedded in government and how community development process works. And basically what we've been doing is taking government relations and public relations and artist relations and community relations and all these things and trying to come up with piecemeal solutions. Now, piecemeal solutions suck. They ruin you. They deplete you. Yes. But we're doing it. At For the now. same time, we're trying to come up with come up with and implement the long-term plan, which is ownership. Now, coming up with the funding for that, coming up with task force can, that can all work together. We have met and work with some artist-friendly developers, some developers who their only goal isn't to like make as much money as possible, but to be part of the community. And we're focusing on that in the region. We've also been talking, um, another issue or challenge has been how municipalities are siloed and separate you know on one level boston is boston cambridge is cambridge and somerville is somerville when you're talking about development money and government but us as people in the creative community we look at it as one big soup soup right so and we go to all of them so for example if you go to new york city Mm -hmm. it's one big city and all the neighborhoods are all under the same government with the same rules same zoning same financial opportunities for grants and, and whatever but when you or, or you know chicago same thing seattle same thing but when you come to boston we have all the people that all these places have but we've, we've broken it up into smaller local governments boston is small compared to these places when it comes to the borders of the city but when you talk about the people like life on the ground the practical use of the geographic area 
It's just like all these other places. Mm-hmm. So and we're we going ne- to Watertown and we're going to Medford and yeah. we're going to Quincy and we're yeah. going, you know. Somerville, Cambridge, Brooklyn, Boston. They're all the same place. Actually. To us. How we live. Right, right. Not, but not how government is managed. And, 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 the, and the fact that it's all separated by these, gov- these smaller governments can make these getting these improvements off the ground more difficult so So one thing that you should know if you don't um cambridge somerville and boston their arts um government departments have gotten together with something called mapc i don't know if you know what that is really good friends with abby okay great yeah the um metropolitan area planning council yeah um which they're doing a cultural research project as we speak about space in the region, Boston, Cambridge, Somerville, trying to put together what are the commonalities, where can it work together, where can they have similar zoning, use similar tools, pull similar levers. And uh, it's kind of the first time on a cultural level that this government planning um, is taking place. So we're psyched about that. And there'll be a lot of steps, but it's happening. So I recently read an article that was talking about AI and how AI is going to change the job market and one of the things it said was there are some people who are going to get really hurt they're going to get they're going to lose their jobs they're going to lose their homes they're going to go into poverty and it said then things will change and there will be new jobs and people will come around but there is going to be casualties in that process they said it's just like when industry you know started whatever sewing or we mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. lost their jobs mm-hmm. that entire generation of people got hurt mm-hmm. and this is what's going on right now mm-hmm. is that there's a big swath of people that are getting hurt i'm 56 years old i may never recover from this that is possible i may never recover the bands that lost tours and had to stop because they lost so much they may never recover so the big question is Will there be new, right? Like, so people have an amazing way of finding their way into new versions of things. I may never be that person. I may not ever have the opportunity again to run a venue. Well, and we've but been hearing will that. will somebody, like, is there going to be a solution? Maybe not in my lifetime, but is there going to be a solution? I hear what you're saying. We've, we've been ha- having that sentiment of conversation regarding music rehearsal. So for people who don't know, there's been um, only a handful of uh, music rehearsal community buildings around the region over the past decades. And uh, right now is a very kind of hot potato topic about losing them and redevelopment and blah 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 anyway um some of the conversations we've been having with musicians not just the venue but that this also bleeds into music rehearsal and music and recording studios and basically anything that takes up space (laughs) literal brick and mortar space you are at risk you are going to be bought sold redeveloped and there's going to be loss and casualties like you're saying Mm -hmm. and some of the bands um have packed it in in the past year so you know we relocated moved away yes but we relocated folks from the sound museum to um dorchester only half of them went now granted there's a location issue and some people might have gone to some in malden we know a lot did or some people might have gone somewhere else but there's also a handful of people who have actually said we packed it in like which is heartbreaking traumatic and awful i it is and i think um you know we should take a moment moment of silence it's sad 
But um, the fact is, is that arts and culture, music has been with us since the dawn of time. And it's not going to go away. Even if AI creates it, people are still going to want to learn how to play the instrument themselves. They're going to still want to be in a room with other people. And they're going to create it regardless of whether or not. I mean, people have been creating art without financial reward promised to them for a very long time. I don't see that stopping we anytime soon. We all need to go back to the model where we get paid by the church. <laughs> <laughs> they have so much money. Have we done that? <laughs> oh, that's a good joke. <laughs> I don't know what I I don't know what you're talking about. Arts for millennia, arts was or centuries, arts was funded by the church, painting and oh, sculpture. like was, Michelangelo. Oh, yeah. Right. Okay, I'm, okay, yeah. I'm joking. That okay. was a joke. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm so, I'm so serious I have to tell you, this is this is not probably well. Maybe it's relevant. I used to work for an organization that was a trying to be basically mtv.com or rollingstone.com they wanted to be an online player of music and they were myspace before but when there was still a 28.8 dial-up it was called iCast okay and um i was the artist and relations manager and i was the content creator and we were getting we were bumping up against walls everywhere because mtv was way ahead of us this 19 99, yeah, your right? Gen X is showing really hard. <laughs> sorry. My Gen X Don't be is, sorry. My no, Gen X is bleeding it's, all over. Don't be great. sorry. No, it's great. So, Keep going. So, uh, your Gen X also my, um, took photography and film. So, yes. Okay. <laughs> true. We also shot film. So, um, so they they were like, you're here to think outside the box. What should we do to save this company? And I said, Christian Rock. Because nobody owned that area. I was like, we should own Christian Rock. Because... If all you're thinking about is how to make your thing successful, like nobody's done that yet online. It's like totally open. So I went down to Nashville. They actually sent me down to Nashville. They gave me a deck. I opened the deck. I like, you know, put it up on the screen and the front page was Danzig. <laughs> I was like, you people just really don't want this. That, anyway, that's very churchy. I was offered, EMI offered me an exclusive on Reba McIntyre. And I got back and I said, there's this young artist who's doing really well. She's just been signed to a TV show. Like, she has great potential. We can have an exclusive on all of her content. And they were like, yeah, we decided we don't want to go in this direction. I was like, well, I get that. <laughs> but it was, you know, there is this this thing like, okay, do we carry more about our our morals and our, like, personal... Ego? No, no, like our, our creed... Or more about yeah. success. Like what if 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 I told you that the Episcopalian Church wanted to open a music venue and that they were going to put, you know, they're all right. They have this sanctuary, this old building that they're not using and they're going to completely retrofit it, but they own it and they're going to pay for it and they're going to turn it into this incredible venue. But it still belongs to the church are we going to say like, oh no, I don't want your beautiful retrofit 500 cap venue because it supports the church? Like, this is good question. <laughs> it's I, not going to happen. Right. This is not right. on the table. But there was a time when arts were. We, we've really gone wild. <laughs> there was a time. This might not make the final edit. when arts. And, this may won't. not make the final edit. But there <laughs> was okay. a time a good when arts and culture were underwritten by the church. So. Let's look at sports. Let's pretend that sports are the church. If they're, they're talking about this in England, 
if the larger football clubs gave one pound to the arts, whatever, council, the venue council, one dollar, one pound per ticket per right. person. If Fenway Park yep. gave one dollar per ticket. 25 cents. 25 cents. 10 cents. Let's say they give 10 cents. Yep. If Fenway Park gave 10 cents on every ticket to you, to Art Stays Here Coalition, we could solve this problem. Absolutely. That's what we were talking about yesterday is that Sports this, this problem actually is finite. We don't need 25,000 music rehearsal studios. We need a few thousand. We don't need 5,000 artist studios. We need a few hundred. We don't need we don't, 30 venues. We might need 10. Right. You know, it's... it's. What's interesting about what you just said is actually that the arts and arts and cultural sector actually generates more economic... Um, Impact. Stimulation. Yeah. Stimulus in the, yeah. in, in the city than, than sports does. But sports Neva captures... Sports captures it. Whereas, it's also in larger numbers. Bands, in ways, yeah. bands don't capture it, right? right? Delta Airlines captures it. Ticketmaster... Ticketmaster captures it. Um, Uber and Lyft drivers capture it. The local bars after the venue, they capture it. The musicians don't capture that stimulus. Mm-hmm. But, you know, yeah. I no, mean, but they're the impetus. Yep. And the, uh, but, but like people, like you said, people go to once, they get out of once. The next thing you know, Highland Kitchen is having a, a banner night. Mm-hmm. Right. Can so you maybe Porch Fest in Somerville, one of the biggest music events in, in New England. If not the country, probably honestly for, of its kind. It's the biggest porch fest. Um, First, yeah. Somerville, Somerville, Somerville restaurants and bars love that weekend. Yep, bands don't even get paid. Right, <laughs> right. That, that's a whole other podcast. Bands so yes, getting paid. so yes, Boston Red Sox, Boston deal. Bruins, Boston Celtics, give us fifty cents for every ticket, please. Thank you. And solve the problem. Yeah. Boom. I'm pretty sure you and got tax dollars salvation. to build your stadiums. Be the, be the heroes. salvation. Be, the, be heroes. the heroes. This is why I was saying, if anybody wants to call my old landlord up on Highland Ave and be like, we will. be the hero. We will. Good. Do it. For real. Be the hero. You can be the hero. Mm-hmm. You can be the guy that comes out looking like solid gold. Because guess what? Or someone else is going to. Because we're going to do it. Yeah. So I think, um, I believe... I believe that there must be a solution. I hope that I get to be a part of it. I hope that it doesn't You're being take a part of it by years. being here and talking to us. Um, can you talk about um, Save Our Stages? Oh, yeah, sure. I'd love to. Talk about like um, how you got involved in of Save Our Stages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, and assume Neva, no one knows what it is. Okay. So what, assuming is no, what is Save Our Stages? Save Our Stages is purely a hashtag campaign. Um, it was very successful. So... Neva, the National Independent Venue Association, was formed very quickly in April of 2020. The reason it was able to form so quickly was because there was this thing called the Independent Venue Week, which was a promotional thing created by Marauder, who are a a PR company in New York who do a lot of stuff around music and events. Um, And there were a lot of venues who were members of independent venue week and one week out of the year we would just put on independent bands which for me was not unusual but um and we would all fly the independent venue week flag like all of our posters would say independent venue week and it was like kind of like um 
Restaurant week. Restaurant week. Exactly. Exactly. Just like restaurant week, lots of deals, lots of cool local shows, and everybody promoting each other nationally. So, because it was a national independent venue week. So, when all of our venues suddenly closed, they very quickly, Marauder very quickly started this like, we have to save the venues. And they created the National Independent Venue Association. And myself and a lot of other venues joined very quickly. And we became a voice very, very quickly. It was completely grassroots, totally volunteer organization that pulled together very quickly. During a pandemic and over Zoom. Over Zoom, very quickly, before we even knew how to use Zoom. And we very quickly, there was there was volunteer lobbyists who came on board and we started to lobby for um, for support for for bailout funds, basically. And I cannot tell you how many people were like, you're never going to pull this off. There are so many people that need money. This is never going to happen. Um, a couple of senators got underneath it and moved through so it was it was hashtag save our stages was purely a social media campaign the actual grant is called the shuttered venue operators grant it's sometimes referred to as the save our stages grant but it's called the shuttered venue operators grant or svog or svog that grant was a 16 billion dollar fund that was made available by a grant process that I have been told was the most arduous and cumbersome and ridiculously heavy grant process anybody has ever seen. There was 60, six zero supporting documents that had to be provided. We had to prove that we had a sound system and a door person and it, we had to show flyers and we had to show financials and it was- During a pandemic. Wild. It was wild what we had to do. Well, a lot of us were unemployed at that moment. So my role at Neva, I joined something called the Implementation Committee, and my role was to find venues and tell them about what was happening and get them involved and bring them in as members, which was free, and get them on the mailing list so that as things were happening, they were so seeing... So recruitment. Yeah, but also really about like making sure they knew not just recruitment, but like accessibility. Like, do you even know these funds exist? Can I help you to understand what you need to pull together? I would like sit on the phone with venues and be like, okay, so because there was so much minutia that I had learned about this grant, but like, there, I, I thus government talking to creatives. Right. So I was one of those, I was on the implementation team and I was there specifically to help venues understand what they needed to do to apply for this grant. So the grant went live in April of 21. 21. 21. 21. We knew that it was coming through. I talk about trauma i gave up my space i moved out a month later the grant was approved so um, did, did you try to go back no no well things um, were still closed the country was still closed School. everything closed. was closed and i had just done this deal where i had signed away my life and i didn't try to go back i thought about it i thought a lot about it but i didn't um, I I felt that I had given up. I felt, I still feel like I gave up. I feel bad about myself. 
you oh. know, because I feel like I gave up. I'm a Sagittarius, whatever. But <laughs> I think um, I think that you accepted the reality of the circumstances. Yeah, I don't think you gave up. Thank you. I appreciate it. And also that. you didn't give up because you still did lots of things. So the shows that I did, the festival shows that I did, and this last one I did, by the way, was the 40th on that lot. Um, the shows that I did the summer of 21 were entirely, or 22, 21. At Boynton Yards? At Boynton Yards were entirely financed by the SVOG. Oh, so let's talk about, um, so you got, so not only did you, were you on the team and you volunteered and helped get other venues in, involved, Yeah, you received a grant. I did receive a grant. And then I was a smaller, I, it, and there's all kinds of, I mean, there's a lot of controversy around this because mm-hmm. there are venues that got grants, very large grants, who are independently owned, but have contracts with bookers, live, with giant bookers. Live Nation and AEG. Right. And there are venues in Boston that got enormous amounts of money, $10 million, who are not, in my mind, independent venues. Mm. But so they got some of the, the money criteria, they, they passed and, the criteria. And because the government was putting it together, they didn't differentiate yeah. that. In I have to say, yeah. I, have, I have great sympathy for these poor people at the SBA, yeah. the Small Business Administration, who are not a grant-giving organization and had to write how to do this Mm -hmm. and it went down Mm -hmm. it crashed Mm -hmm. and then they opened up the um they opened up the one for restaurants in between when the first when the svog crashed and when it reopened and a lot of people jumped ship from the svog over to the restaurant one and then didn't get the money but if you had applied for it you were no longer eligible for the svog because it just that's a whole other situation. They were oh my just, God. yeah, I mean, restaurants. <laughs> so you took your grant money and you started to do outdoor yeah. concerts uh-huh. in Union Square uh-huh. at Boynton Yards, yeah. which is now the home of the new Green Line extension, T-Stop in which Somerville. sometimes. Formerly the home of, uh, that piece of land was formerly the home of the Jam, Jam Spot, Spot, which was the last music rehearsal building in Somerville. Mm-hmm. Now we Which was have, such a cool model. Yeah, we don't have that anymore. That was kind of a model like this one where you had rooms that were prepared to... Yeah, so they, yeah they, were like, they were like um, pre, uh, pre-furnished with gear and rented by the hour. It's not, it's not the preferred model for most musicians in town, right. but it's a model that is needed along with right. the monthly rental right. model. You know? Right, right. So tell us about some of those shows or about producing those shows. Yeah, well, they came out of the gr- out of the gate really strong. Um they were the first shows for a lot of people coming back. Um and they started in June of 21, not 20. 20 21. 21, the first covid summer we didn't everybody was shut down. Right. So June of 21, they came out of the gate really strong. We got rained out a lot right at the beginning so they kind of got hit but everything was looking really good and then there was this massive COVID outbreak in Provincetown and nobody was coming out again even outdoors 4th of July weekend turned into two months of nobody even though things had started even outdoors people were masked and our numbers dropped enormously we were we were charging for tickets and we had a bar 
So we were trying to put some money back in the bank, but it was it, it was a big loss. There was a big loss. And then but we were one of the only things happening at that time. So the next summer I did far fewer. The first summer we did 29 or something. The next summer I did far fewer thinking that they would be more focused, but everybody decided to do outdoor stuff. So last summer we had great weather. We had pretty good turnouts. They were okay, but they were really, really expensive to produce Mm. because, you know, they're tiny, tiny festivals, but you still have to rent the stage and the sound equipment and the porta pots. The porta well, thank you, Boynton Yards, for renting the porta potties. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They did that. Thank you, Boynton Yards. Um so so they were very expensive, but that's what I used that money for. And in fact, that meant that people were working, gig mm-hmm. workers were working, bands were working. Um, so it was actually, I saw that as being beneficial. Like that's what that money was for. I couldn't, that money had to be used for that. You can't actually use it to buy a building. And um, I don't know, maybe I should have been looking more for something to rent, but it was meant to be used to stimulate the yeah. economy and I like to think that that's what I used it for mm-hmm. um, oh, and to support so the creative community right yeah so that's that's what I used my funds for so yeah Great. so I have, I have, I have a question uh, given the this grant and the, the federal government stepping in right which will never happen again that was nobody uni- thought that was going to happen a well I mean who, we'll see I mm-hmm. mean it's like it's you like know. the WPA it's like <laughs> Once in a hundred years. In the work we're doing, though, we're talking about you know what can our cities do for us, what can the state do for us. So, what would you ask of the mayors and the governors and the and the and the advocates and the people? I would ask of- them to give us space. Give because there are city spaces there are city owned spaces. I know they are out there. Land, uh, property, and buildings. Yeah. Give us space. Make it possible for us to run businesses where we're giving back to the city. We're giving tax the dollars. Tons goes to oh the city. Oh my God! Cities I was greatly from the arts. The tax dollars, and you know, there is an even number. It's something like seventeen dollars for every dollar spent on a ticket goes back into the community. Like it's a massive, massive number, and it's totally beneficial to the city in so many ways. Again, be the hero. Be the salvation. Be the savior. I believe that there are Win spaces. <laughs> yeah. I believe that there must be spaces that cities are sitting on that they've, you know, not maybe as obvious as the Center for Arts at the Armory or or just the Armory, the armory building the armory with building. that houses that organization. But give them the space so that they can reduce their rents. So that it's affordable for people like me to do shows in those spaces and still be able to give the band some money. And stimulate the economy. And stimulate the economy. The Armory is an interesting case because I think actually, I mean, the city owns it and it is going to remain an arts building. So the Armory's got... But they're charging rent. They're charging the Center for Arts rent. Uh, Yeah, I mean, the building has... They're charging their tenants rent. The building has to... Yes, this is what I'm saying. Give the space right but you're gonna if, let, so let's say once is given this a space right. you're still gonna have you're still gonna have to pay to operate the space that's the rent or paying to operate the space right is like you're still but, paying to be but there yes 
Yes. But, you're, but nobody's going to remove you, is my point. That armory is going to remain an arts building. It's going to be that way in perpetuity. It's not right. going to stop being for the arts. That's the point I'm trying to make. The community will She's benefit saying, from your She's saying don't have cycling making, tenants. Just, yeah, right. Okay. Right. But no, but the point I'm making also is make it affordable. Mm-hmm. For, oh, totally. For those arts has, business. It has and, to be a part of it. And it has to be a part of it. And I don't know what the Center for Arts pays, but I know they're strapped. Right. I know that they're always running it out to the to the hilt, and I know that I pay a substantial amount of money to use that space mm-hmm. because they have to make back their nut. And I know what it costs to operate a space that size, and I can only assume that the reason that they're charging what they're charging is because their rent is so high, because they only ever have four people working at mm-hmm. any given time. Well, so that's the not, other part of our work, is not just um, saving, preserving, and about space, but then about affordability right, within right. that. Because... It's it doesn't exist otherwise, right? For arts and for culture, and just like lots of other things that are subsidized and have protections and policies, we need that too. The crossroads of our advocacy is that we've been seeing this happen for decades. Whether it's Fort Point, whether it's venues, whether it's COVID or not COVID, all of this would have happened potentially anyway. And um, because as the rents get too high, people sell the buildings and people get displaced. So. How can we stop that? The answer is ownership. If the answer is ownership, how do we get ownership? We need to come together. We need money and support. Um, some of the things we've been asking for the government from the government is um, like what Boston is doing with office spaces downtown, and they're giving 75% tax credits on property tax if you turn office buildings into housing. Well, how about one for arts? You know, how about like, so we're trying to give voice and that's actually why we're doing the podcast is to give you and others voice um even over the internet to uh let people know what are we asking how can this help because clearly people do value the arts you know that's kind of interesting not to get back to the sag after ai streaming that whole mess that's going on right now but during the pandemic all anyone did was sit back and watch streaming and that was all creative yes mm-hmm. and um yeah who got everybody through the pandemic but musicians and oh video, my god totally filmmakers and it was and amazing the art that was coming out was so amazing and, and they yeah. were giving it all away just well, giving it now all away we all have we're going to bring people together to stand up for our community and figure out a way to keep it affordable, to keep spaces. And because I'll tell you, even the, what you're talking about in Bushwick, come back here in 20 years and they'll be having the displacement conversation unless they buy the buildings. Mm-hmm. It, it has happened in Lowell. How, it, it, it is, it, it's going to happen in Worcester after it has its Cycle. resurgence. Um, it's already happened in Salem. So it's that is the cycle. We have to intervene put things in place and it's not a lot of things in place and it's not a lot of money and it's not a lot of no, property. it's not about taking over the entire no, city. It's, it's just, just some a handful of that's protected buildings that are yeah. protected. Yes. Right. Yeah. Are there any last things that you would want to say or mention or is there anything that we haven't talked about today that you feel is relevant? Full well knowing that there's spinoffs of this conversation. Um, yeah, I mean, we we touched on trauma a couple of times. Um, I don't think that should be underestimated as we're having these conversations, that this is a group of people, all of us included, that has been through an extraordinarily awful experience. And um, 
maybe some maybe some support groups around that, right? <laughs> Where we can all get together and acknowledge what kind of losses have happened. Just so much, so much loss, so much. I think it should be noted that creative people are very brave. You know that they do get up and keep going. You asked me like, why did I keep going? And like, well. What's the alternative? This is what I do. This is what I've done my whole life. I started booking bands when I was 18. I booked tours because those bands needed to go on tour. You know, like that's creative people do that. Mm-hmm. But um, I think I think that it needs to be recognized that it's been a punishing experience. And, and even though is, and even though the world has reopened. And even though COVID is somewhat behind us or contained, the loss has not been acknowledged. The what it has done to humans and creatives and musicians and artists, we need to do some of that. Thank you for really naming that, and um, we'll be calling you to help co-facilitate the su- <laughs> the support groups of Arts Days here. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. Um, Well, I want to say thank you, first of all, for taking the time to be here with us. Thank you for all of the things you've done over the decades, which are many. Thank you for the hats that you have worn and wear. Um, Thank you for pivoting during the pandemic. Thank you for what you're doing at Boynton Yards. Um, Thank you for how you've supported Girls Rock Camp and Ladies Rock Camp and its transformation. Um, I think we can heal. I think it has to be done together. And um, I think people inspire each other and creatives inspire each other. And, you know, we've had some wins. Um, We've had some at Humphrey Street. We've had some relocation for the Sound Museum. Uh, We got a good amount of relocation money for the artists at 119 Braintree Street. We helped keep the musicians at Charlestown Rehearsal Studios. We we have a lot of projects. Um, But right now is a is a time that I it's people are talking about it people are talking about creative and cultural space there's a bill right now at the state legislature from mass creative about cultural space there's um, like Ethan is saying how can our community affect city council elections mayoral elections governor elections Um, how can we get people more engaged especially at a time when people feel traumatized and have to do their own healing how can you get even more involved well we want to be build it and strengthen it so that when things ever happen again there are protections in place Preach. thank you <laughs> thank you Bill's thank you back Bill's here okay no no you're welcome thank you back yeah because i'm very excited about the work you guys are doing Thanks for listening to the Art Stays Here podcast series, Culture Crisis Conversations. You can listen to all of the episodes from our website, artstayshere.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our partners, New Alliance Audio, New Alliance East, and The Record Co. And thank you for the funding from Boston's Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture. Join the movement at artstayshere.org.